So on 5.04 p.m., October the 17th, 1989, there was a magnitude 6.9 earthquake that erupted along the San Andreas Fault that passes right through Hayward and all the way down through Fremont and up through Oakland. And that happened during Game 3 of the World Series between two Bay Area teams, the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's, for those of you who remember. And it was a blessing that happened during the game because uh, that meant that there was less people on the road as many people had gone home early to be able to watch the game. And even so, the Cypress Street Viaduct of 880 collapsed, crushing 42 people in their cars to death. There were video imagery of the Marina District completely on fire. Uh, the Embarcadero in San Francisco and part, a portion of the Central Freeway were just flat out gone. And in fact, uh, there was also a woman who died when a 50-foot section of the Bay Bridge collapsed, shattered completely, and uh, they died in their car uh, as, uh, during the earthquake. All told, there was about 4,000 injuries that day. 63 people died, and the total damage was about $6 billion, which in today's economy would be roughly about $12 billion uh, in, uh, today. And so those 17 seconds, it, was, it wasn't a long period of time, but 17 seconds etched into the collective memory of the Bay Area. A stark reminder that it doesn't matter whether you are rich or poor, whether you are young or old, whether you are strong or weak, when the ground beneath your feet is shaken. And it doesn't just, it happens literally and physically at times, but it's not just that, it also happens to us personally and spiritually as well. And so the question is, how do you find your footing? How do you run with endurance in your faith when the world and your life experience catastrophic upheaval? Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. We're in this series called Anchored, where we discover as turbulence in our lives causes us to drift from our faith, that Jesus is an anchor of hope for our souls. And for the Hebrew Christians back then who received this letter, for us today, that this letter is a call for us to hang on to Jesus because he is better than all the other people, pursuits, and possibilities in which we place our hope. And so the big idea that we want you to get from the text this morning is that how we deal with the quakes of life depends entirely on how you see God, how you see God in it, how you see his role in the suffering. And we've, we've seen that there are two responses to adversity. In chapters 11 and 12, over the last few weeks, we saw that the great Old Testament heroes of the past, they persevered in their faith through those times of adversity. And that like them, we too can run with endurance by fixing our eyes past our pain to our perfecter, Jesus, knowing that he's our joy on the other side of suffering and obedience. But then, the last passage we read closed with a warning, the other side of faith, of faithlessness, warning us, don't be like Esau, who experienced the momentary tremor of hunger and decided that trusting God was not worth it and that he'd rather medicate this mild discomfort by trading the promises of God for a bowl of soup. In both cases, the deciding factor of if you're going to trust God or turn away from God was this. How do you view God and his role in the midst of your suffering? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. 
For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So let's stop right there. The author paints this picture of two mountains, two possible outcomes to your life, to your faith, to your eternity. And the first mountain answers the question, well, why would Esau shrug off God's long-term promises in light of short-term pain or short-term gain? And we can see from the passage what's happening here is, is because he viewed suffering and God the same way as Israel did when they encountered him at Mount Sinai. And so this, this thing that can't be touched is all quoting back to or referring us back to Exodus chapter 19. That after the Lord miraculously delivered his people from slavery and death in Egypt and leads them towards a promised land, he brought them to this place of rest and worship, the halfway point in their journey where the very presence of God descends on Mount Sinai in order to meet with Moses in person, face to face, and to give them, the people of God, his law, defining their old covenant relationship, what it's going to be like to relate to him through the law. And so here we are in verses 18 through 20, and God is manifesting on this mountain as a consuming fire. He's surrounded by thick darkness and smoke. There's this furious tempest, a storm of lightning. The blast of a trumpet announces the presence of the living God has come. And then he speaks with a voice like thunder to his people. And one of the things that he says is he protects them. He prepares them and protects them by instructing them that neither people nor even animals should even touch the mountain, much less climb the mountain, lest they die because of the holy presence of God. So what does Mount Sinai communicate to the people? That God is so holy that you cannot approach him. You cannot know him by your own ability or morality. There at Mount Sinai, we saw in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, that the people received the law, the old covenant, but it did not save them. It only reveals how holy God is and how sinful we are. And so as the literal ground beneath their feet is shaking from the voice of God, how do the people of Israel respond? We find out in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21, and here in this text, that they beg for God not to speak to them directly. They beg him, don't talk to us directly. Why? Because they don't trust him. Remember that they've been constantly grumbling against him in the wilderness. 
And so they perceive his holiness and their sinfulness through the eyes of fearfulness and distance. They see him like the terrifying boss who always seems angry. And so you're afraid if he calls you into his office and you try to avoid conversation with that person at all costs. And in fact, in verse 21, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19, it said that back there that Moses himself was terrified, trembling with terror as well. Why? I thought this guy was the one who met with God face to face. Why is he also trembling with fear? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 9, you might remember, it talks about how at Sinai, the people of God grew antsy. They've been waiting all this time. They saw the incredible power of God. But it seems like while Moses was up on the mountain, that God has seemed to quiet down. And Moses has been gone a long time. And so they start to feel this anxiety and uncertainty about the road ahead. And so instead of growing in faith, they grew in fear, deciding, you know what? We don't know what to do, what's going to happen next. Let's make our own God. We'll make a golden calf to lead us and guide us, to protect us and provide for us. And so in response to that, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19, Moses says that he's terrified because God's holiness requires judgment to be visited upon the people for their sin. So that's why Moses was terrified. But it says in this passage, you have not come to Mount Sinai in fear. Verse 22, you've come instead to Mount Zion in faith. This is the mountain where the city of Jerusalem is built. In other words, this isn't just a temporary rest stop for God's people. This is where the presence of God himself dwelled amongst his people in the temple, in the city, on the mountain of Zion. And it's not the physical city or the geographic location. It says in verse 22, this is the heavenly, eternal one of which the earthly Jerusalem is but a shadow. Remember in chapter 8, verse 5? So, instead of a physical mountain that you can touch and die, this is the heavenly one where you live forever. Instead of experiencing terror and distance and devastation, you join the countless angels that gather in joy and celebration. Verse 22, 23, excuse me. Instead of despising your firstborn blessings of God like Esau, you become the firstborn by faith in Christ who receive your full heavenly inheritance in Christ. Zion is the place where God himself resides and he is still the great judge over the living and the dead. But instead of being fearful and distant that he's going to visit judgment on you, he's accessible and present because he dwells with you. And all those who were righteous by faith in the Old Testament, like all that spiritual hall of fame we saw in chapter 11, those who died without yet receiving the promise, who are awaiting resurrection, finally receive their fulfillment with us at Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem at Mount Zion. So, what is the difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion? God hasn't changed. He's still awesome. He's still the holy judge of all people and nations. We haven't changed because we still spend our lives building one golden calf after another. We turn from God frequently and often. So what's changed here? Verse 24, the difference is Jesus. That he is the one who mediates a new covenant. In other words, a new way of relating to God. 
that at Jerusalem, he shed his blood as a better offering for our sin. Through his blood, he speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? You see, both Abel and Jesus were murdered, but in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, Abel's blood cries out for justice and judgment. In other words, Sinai. But Jesus' blood declares that God's justice is fully satisfied, that his blood cleanses us from sin and releases us from judgment. So what is the encouragement here when our lives are being shaken by difficulty and despair? Is that you can come to God at the mountain of faith instead of the mountain of fear because the blood of Jesus draws us near. And the question for us is, are you willing to listen to it? The blood of Jesus speaks a better word to us. Or do you close your ears and turn away like the fearful Israelites at Sinai? I used to meet with this man regularly, not someone who was not from our church. And every month he would come in a very dour mood with constant complaints about life or about God. Why won't God get me a girlfriend? Why won't God... Let me get a promotion. Why, does God, why did God let me get in this car accident? Why did God let my dad get sick? And you can see his entire interaction with God was one where I follow all the religious rules so God owes me. Or I failed to keep the rules so God punishes me. But either way, God is not someone who loves me or helps me. He is someone fearful and distant. He's up on Mount Sinai. And when you see God and your suffering through that lens, how do you think he will respond when real pain comes into his life? I want you to listen carefully to the words that he said. What good is God's future if this is my present? Who does that sound like? Esau. Because of his distance from God, I won't listen to you and I can't see the long-term promises are greater than the short-term pain or the short-term pleasures of this life. And so when the ground beneath your feet and your life start to shake, on which mountain do you pitch your tent? Mount Sinai or Mount Zion? There are two peaks, two perspectives where you can live. You see, on Mount Sinai, you see a holy God as fearful and distant. And if you view God this way, then you'll see every quake, every ache in your life as either God's absence or God's punishment. And because you're afraid of him, you won't trust that he's good and that he cares or that he's going to be there for you. You'll go your own way. You'll choose a bowl of soup over the promises of God. On Mount Zion, you see the same holy God Through the lens of the cross. My sins are paid. My shame is erased. I am fully known, fully accepted, fully loved. And so when pain comes, my future is secure because I know that there's joy on the other side of suffering and obedience. And in the present, I can endure because God is using my adversity for my good and for my growth. Now I know that sounds nice. But where do we actually find stability when life is cataclysmically shaken up? 
Let's read on in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So in verse 25, don't be like the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Don't refuse to listen to God. Remember that the blood of Jesus is speaking a better word to you of forgiveness, of grace, of life. But if you continue to reject him and refuse to listen to him, then his holiness can only speak judgment to us for our sin. And so we're reminded in verse 25 that back in Exodus chapter 32, all the people who broke the old covenant of God by turning away from him to a golden idol, they died. They all were killed either by the sword or by a plague. And so the point here is that if they didn't escape God's physical judgment on earth, how much more inescapable is the greater eternal judgment that comes from heaven? If you and I continue to close our ears to Jesus. Well, that sounds incredibly cruel and unfair. Verse 26, when God speaks at Sinai, back in Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, the entire mountain trembled. The earth shook. Now, question for you. Did that happen before or after the Israelites worshipped the golden calf and received judgment? Before. You see, He shook them up to reveal his holy presence and to warn them about holy judgment against sin. And so in the new covenant of Jesus, there's a quote here when it says that, uh, yet once more uh, that I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's a quote from Haggai chapter two, verse six. And so uh, in this new covenant, the voice of God won't simply just shake a little mountain or a little city but his voice will shake the heavens and the earth, all of creation and the entire cosmos. Now, I want you to notice this. In verse 27, the author kind of reemphasizes, did you notice I'm focusing on that little phrase the author is saying, yet once more. He's talking about a final time at the second coming of the Messiah when God shakes our world and shakes our lives to warn us of the final judgment on all peoples and all nations that is coming. Revelations chapter 20, verse 11. When the heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of God will come and King Jesus will reign forevermore. And so we need to listen to him. We need to turn to him. We need to trust him when that earthquake is shaking up our lives and our world. Now, when we hear that, Well, that's very convicting and very convincing if you are not yet a believer in Christ. But why is God warning the Christians? 
because this letter is written to people who are already believers. And here's the key. Look at the second half of verse 27. This shaking indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, the things that have been made. So what is the purpose of an earthquake for the people of God? God shakes out the temporary things of our lives to prepare us for his unshakable kingdom to come. When the ground beneath your feet collapses, the things that are temporary, the things that are distracting, the things that are destructive, those things that are not founded upon God fall away. So what you have left, what you trust, what you treasure are the unshakable, eternal things. The promises of Jesus in our forgiveness and acceptance, his life, his joy, his holiness, his home and his family forever with God. And so when you're in the midst of shaking, when my finances are being shaken, is it founded on Jesus Christ? When my home life is being shaken, is it founded on Jesus Christ? When my health is being shaken, is it founded on Jesus? When my career or my relationships that I treasure are being shaken, that what is not of Jesus might fall away, can you bear that? You can if you bring it all under the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. So here's the principle of coming to Mount Zion. It's not that the shaking gets taken away from your life. It's not, well, life is tough at Mount Sinai. So come to Mount Zion and everything will be smooth sailing. Here's the principle. Come to Zion and you will have a firm foundation so that when things shake, you will not be shaken. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving. That means that we're receiving this unearned gift of grace by faith in Jesus. This kingdom of Jesus that cannot be shaken. This is our stability in an unstable world. And let us worship and serve God. Because he is worthy and holy and awesome. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. There was a consuming fire at Mount Sinai. We saw way back in verse 18. But do you know that there is also a consuming fire of judgment at Mount Sinai? Where? At the cross. At the cross, the judgment of God... God consumed the Son of God. It was poured out entirely on Jesus. He bore it completely and perfectly as payment for our sin so that we might receive righteousness and life forever through Him. And so if you choose Mount Sinai, you're saying, well, pour out this consuming fire on me. But if you choose Mount Zion, you're pointing to the cross and saying, Jesus I receive the consuming fire that was poured out on you for my sin. And as we receive that, as we experience God as a consuming fire, he continues to burn away all that can be shaken up in my life. But what do we have to fear if everything that I have of value is eternal and permanent? If I'm laying up treasures up in heaven instead of here on earth? 
And so I dare you to pray this very dangerous prayer of faith. God, would you burn up in my life whatever needs to be burned? That's what it means to come to Jesus. That's what it means to follow him and trust him. But I would much rather face a consuming fire in Christ than on my own. Because what will remain will be unshakable. As a Californian, uh, you and I, we get used to earthquakes. Afterwards, we just kind of go about our business and we hardly give it another thought. And there's times that uh, we've even slept through earthquakes because we're so used to these little tremors. We've learned to cope. We've learned to adjust and just move on with our lives. But then then there there are those times that we all encounter earthquakes of life that are far too big to ignore. In 1983, a family was terrified as an earthquake rocked their home in Coalinga, California. They were relieved when it finally passed, and as they went outside to check on their neighbors, they were shocked to discover that the entire row of homes on their street were completely decimated, except for theirs. Afterward, earthquake engineers who were studying the situations, they figured out the difference. You see, their house was bolted to its foundation. So the structure might go like this, but it withstood the shaking of the earthquake. And before it became common practice in California, the other homes on their street were built without being bolted down to the the foundation. So when horizontal earth movement occurs, it would move the house about just, just five or six inches, like this much, five or six inches off of the foundation, but that's enough to cause entire homes to collapse. And so this family survived the intense shaking of their home and their lives, not because of the strength of their own legs, because of, but because of what they were standing on, because it was bolted to a strong foundation. That's what made all the difference. So what are you standing on this morning? When your world and your life are shaken up, it's not the strength of your feet or your finances, not the strength of your ability or morality. It's the strength of the foundation that matters. If you trust the promises of his unshakable kingdom, if you set your heart on it, if you lay up treasure in it, then the fire of God will consume your adversity and refine your eternity. But if you reject the one who is speaking from heaven, like Esau, preferring the fragile, shaky kingdom of this world, then you'll meet the consuming fire of God as your destruction, not your deliverance. Listen to the voice of God who speaks by the blood of Jesus. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will accept you. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will give you an unshakable home. I will always be there for you if you. You will trust me. How we deal with the earthquakes of life depends entirely on how we see God and how we see his role in our suffering. If you're going to see God, this holy God, as fearful and distant, you won't turn to him or trust him. But if you see him through the lens of the cross, then even in the midst of your temporary loss, your temporary pain, you will know that your present can be endured, that your future will be secured because what you stand on is unshakable. It's founded upon the rock of Jesus Christ. 
And so this morning, would you take up your tent that's been camping at Mount Sinai for way too long and come over to where Jesus is on Mount Zion? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty and the power of your word this morning. God, we recognize that you are a consuming fire, that you are the same holy God at Mount Sinai as you are at Mount Zion. But we recognize that the difference is that you have given us a mediator, that our great high priest, Jesus, your very son, is the perfect payment, the only one who could satisfy your perfect holiness with his perfect mercy. And so, God, we come before you gratefully, worshipfully, recognizing that as large as the earthquakes of life are, no matter how much the ground beneath our feet is shaken, that we are receiving what is unshakable, eternal. And so we place our confidence in that. We place our feet on that. We put our heart and lay up our treasures in that. And so, Lord, I know that there are many people who are experiencing pain in their lives this this season. Loss, doubts, and even despair. Would you remind us once again to fix our eyes on Jesus? Would you help us to move from that place of fearful distance and remember that through Jesus you have brought us into accessibility in your presence? Would you plant our feet on the solid rock of Jesus today? In his powerful name we pray.